You were a full professor. You didn't have much money. You didn't even really have much of a plan. So what were you thinking when you gave up all that security and took a chance on a, a new venture, the Land Institute? Well, that's a good question, an important question, and a hard one to answer. There's something about, I think, being young and somewhat idealistic, and uh, you're looking at the situation of the world, and you're thinking these universities are not really doing what needs to be done. And so I began to imagine what would be an ideal kind of learning environment. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. This is a show for the curious and the concerned, folks who like to ponder big questions and aren't afraid to face big problems. Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. He won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He's a geneticist working to change not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. Retired Professor Robert Jensen talks with Wes about his creaturely worldview and how to understand the past while imagining the future. Robert always prompts Wes to do what he does best, share distinctive and engaging stories about everything from his childhood to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is Episode 2, Respecting Your Tools. Here's Robert Jensen. I'm Robert Jensen, your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. Wes, good morning. Good morning to you, Bob. Uh, you will remember that in the first episode of this podcast, we looked back on some of the key influences on your thinking from your early years on the farm all the way through academic life. In this second episode, we're going to focus on specific jobs you've had and what you've learned from doing them. So let me start by re remembering a teacher of mine who once responded to a student's question about career planning by saying, listen, kid, you don't need a career plan. You need a job. A career is the story you tell about all those jobs you've had once you get old. So with that in mind and being skeptical about careers, let's talk, though, about your career by talking about the jobs you've held. So. You grew up on a farm, and you worked on farms and a ranch growing up in the 1940s and 1950s. Did you ever want to be a farmer or a rancher yourself? Uh, once I had time on that ranch in South Dakota, I thought this is uh, the good life. And uh, lots of space, beautiful prairie. This seemed uh, idyllic. Uh, the other farming I liked enough and especially if the scale was sufficiently small, and uh, where I grew up in the Kansas River Valley near Topeka, why the farming was small scale. I don't know as I would like having a square mile of wheat and a square mile of corn and a square mile of whatever, but uh, the farming is wonderful when you have lots of diversity with the crops and with the animals. So you grew up on a farm that had how many different crops in a given year? Well, somewhere around, I don't know, 23 to 25 or 27. 
I guess some would call a truck farm, but it was more than that. We had alfalfa. We had pasture. We had draft animals until the mid part of World War II. I haven't seen any farm since as diverse as the Mm -hmm. one I grew up on. So let's say you were to drive by a, a Kansas wheat farm that was literally now thousands of acres of nothing but wheat. What do you feel when you look out on a field like that? Well, it's all right for those that want that sort of scale. But, you know, you want to move from one thing to another. You don't want to have to (laughs) wait for a mile in order to make a turnaround with your disc or your plow. Uh, The big farm with the big equipment does not appeal to me. In fact, I just can't see myself making a life with that kind of a huge operation. You've spoken often about how the farming you grew up with involved a lot of hoeing. Was that the uh, advantage of the ranch? You you didn't have to do any hoeing? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, hoeing, uh, this was an operation in which you could at least go from one crop to another, and then there was the irrigation. So there was a lot of work there. But... uh, you know, I preferred that ranch. There you you sat on a horse, and uh, you counted the cattle, and you saw to it that uh, the fences were up, and you could go along. They had dams on that ranch. It was near White River, South Dakota. Uh, and so there were fish, and there were fishing poles laid down beside the water hole, and if you want to stop and fish for a bullhead, you could do it. So... It was an idyllic uh, situation and very different than being on the end of a hoe handle. I mean, being on the end of the hoe handle taught me some things uh, that I would not have been able to learn on the ranch. And uh, among them, the nature of the weeds that come into the system and you have to remove them if you're going to get a decent crop. It sounds like you're saying that diversity is just more interesting and the smaller scale allows you to, to, in a sense, learn more about the land. Is that a fair summary? I think so, because uh, a watermelon is not a strawberry and a alfalfa field is not a pasture and a um, corn field is not a wheat field, and so on. I mean, uh, these different crops have different ways that have to be managed. And uh, when you, say, are harvesting your alfalfa, and you hope to get maybe five cuttings a year, and so you had to mow it, and then you raked it, and then if you got a rain, you had to rake it again, And then you would uh, bale it, and those bales were of a weight of some 70 pounds or less uh, that then they had to be put on a wagon, and then they had to be taken to the barn, and then they taken into the loft of the barn, and they had to be stacked in the barn, and it may be hot in that barn like it usually was. Uh, So there was a lot of work keep the farm going. Uh, and there was a certain a certain amount of satisfaction of getting the hay in the barn. 
and you had to be careful that the hay was good and dry because you know you could there's barns that have burned down because of of uh, having your hay too wet. One of my favorite memories is bringing the hay in from the field, horses that brought it in to actually hitch to the bales and raise it up to the barn and in through a big old door and transfer from vertical to horizontal and then drop the hay in the barn. This was all done with creaturely power, you know, the horsepower. That was fascinating to me. And uh, then, of course, when more of the industrialization came, well, then we were doing more of that with the tractor. And uh, it didn't have quite the same feel to it. I was doing a lot of the, the stacking of the hay in the barn and the loading of the hay. You felt alive, although I wasn't standing around or working around thinking I'm alive. It's just in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. Now, somebody might come along and say, well, all of that work that took several, maybe even a dozen people, is now done by one person on a tractor with the associated machinery, and that's more efficient. Uh, how would you respond to the, the, the claim that the current highly mechanized fossil fuel-driven version is more efficient? Well, of course, uh, the, the first question that I would ask uh, the person that said that, would you define efficiency for me? And usually what that person means is in time. They're not paying attention to the uh, highly dense carbon, the fossil fuel that has gone into making that efficient. So efficient usually means something related to speed. And it may be if we're discounting the future and discounting an energy cost. So I'd just say, uh, in some respects, it's very inefficient for one human to be doing the whole operation. You want to go all the way back to mining the ore in the Minnesota Iron Range to build, say, the tractor or the combine and the processing in Gary, Indiana, and the, uh, you know, the assembly at the uh, maybe Moline, Illinois. By the time you get all of that in, you now have a lot of investment in time. Of course, this is, when they mean efficient, they're using the industrial mind. And uh, they're not looking at all of the embodied energy and time that goes into the operation. So you mentioned the industrial system, the industrial mind. You've had experience there, too, one of the first jobs you had off the farm was as a welder yeah. in a couple of different shops. Um, uh, that's certainly the industrial world. So let's talk about welding. The first question is, why'd you go after a welding job? And then well, okay. uh, were you any good at it? <laughs> well, I took vocational ag courses because I guess I thought I was going to be a farmer. I was like a lot of the boys in the area. See, uh I went to Seaman Rural High School, which is at Topeka, Kansas. I think we probably took bow egg because that's what our parents were, as they were farmers. So when you're in a bow egg shop, you learn to weld. And uh, there's a friend of mine 
that uh, the two of us went to work uh, the summer, I think, before we were you know, seniors in high school. We went to work welding at Topeka Foundry and Ironworks. And uh, <laughs> I remember being out there welding the beams for a gymnasium on the, uh, for a high school. Now, uh, how good a welder was I? I don't know, good enough to have that job. And um, I wouldn't say that I was anything close to uh, being a pipeline welder. That requires real skill. For the union that I was working with, I was considered a journeyman welder at Henry Manufacturing Company. And that's when I became a union welder. And... Um, that was interesting in itself because I had come from a family culture, a rural culture that said lots of bad things about unions. And now here I was, a union man and getting good wages. You seem to have respect for people who do a job well, no matter what the job is, and for people who respect their tools. Is that... Um, partly what you picked up on the farm and in the welding, that if you worked hard and you, and you respected your tools, that was the standard? It was. If you got a hoe, you want that hoe to be working for you. And so, you know, you don't leave the hoe out to rust. Same way with a shovel uh, or a plow. With a plow, you clean the dirt off and then um, likely put some uh, oil or grease on it so that it doesn't rust. Now, of course, that rust had come off with several passes through a field, but you want that plow to be slick. And it's good to have that hoe slick. And uh, what I've noticed is that um, the more affluent we get, the more careless we tend to get with our tools. But there are some that that's just the way they are. They're going to keep uh, their tools really up to snuff, so to speak. Uh, your friend Wendell Berry wrote a, a very memorable story recently called The Art of Loading Brush. Yeah. It was about that attention to detail, that even if it's a task as simple as loading brush that's been cut by the side of the road, loading it on to haul away, that there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. Is that the kind of training you got growing up? Let's say you're going to throw on, say, only a limb or two. Uh, you're not going to pay much attention to uh, whether there's an art to it. You just want it to stay on the wagon until you get to where you're going to throw it off. But if you're going to be loading a lot of brush and you want to make only one trip to where the brush is going to be thrown off, then there is an art. You want to put it on there in such a way that uh, it's going to all hang on there. It's a kind of an aesthetic experience to see that it looks good, you know, when it looks right. So it isn't just a matter of slinging, uh, <laughs> slinging uh, you know, the limbs up on a, up on a trailer, and that involves an art, and it requires mm -hmm. some knowledge about the nature of the load. Uh, I think that's what Wendell was talking about, minimizing the number of trips you have to make. Now, 
This was especially true, I think, at the time of the draft animal. Uh, one, they didn't move as fast as, say, a tractor would. And also, you don't want to wear your draft animals out. I have these friends in Ohio, Holmes County, Ohio, David and Elsie Klein and their kids and grandkids and so on. And uh, I was riding on a, a wagon with uh, David and the team was going along and and uh, all of a sudden uh, the team just stopped. I caught on what he was doing. He were about to go up a rather small incline and uh, he was resting the team. Now, if we had the tractor, uh, we wouldn't pay attention to stopping at that one spot. Uh, here's an attention to detail. And it comes from the creaturely uh, worldview. And uh, most folk would not even notice that there's going to be a slight incline that will make a difference. So come back to the loading brush. This is where said, art and utility merge. And you said often in a, a sunshine economy, that is a, an economy that isn't using fossil fuels, is just using human and, and animal labor uh, directly, you know, furnished by the sun, that that attention to detail is much more important. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And so is, is the human future going to be a sunshine future? Well, I hope so. Uh, I think that we will maybe have finally turned the corner. It's going to require, I think, an emphasis on a sufficiency of people rather than a sufficiency of capital. And uh, somehow or another, in all of this industrial revolution and later, uh, a sufficiency of capital had a way of overriding a sufficiency of people. Well, you've spoken often about um, the need to repopulate the countryside in a sunshine future, the idea that there is a natural eyes to acres ratio, the, the appropriate number of people to watch over a particular place of land. And that's a big part of um, your vision of the future. And we're going to get to that in a, in a future podcast. So let's get back to your uh, your career. You did work on a farm, on a ranch, in a welding shop, all by the time you were ready to go off to college. You go off to college at Kansas Wesleyan University in Salina. What did you imagine your future was going to be when you stepped onto campus for the first time? <laughs> well, I didn't think too much of my future. I was 18, and... Uh... It was a place to go play football and run track and see what this is all about, this college stuff. I didn't even know what to major in. Somebody asked me, what's my major? Uh, and I said, business administration. Well, <laughs> so how did that come out? Oh, I don't know how it come out, but uh, it took me just long enough to take the introductory biology course to know that biology was my major. Um, so you graduate from Kansas Wesleyan, and uh, you went on to the University of Kansas to do a master's degree in botany. Now, this coming from a family where your parents had not been college students. Why did you go to graduate school for that master's? 
Well, <laughs> I got married at Christmas before I graduated. She was a Kent's Westland student, too. She had another year, and I couldn't get a teaching coaching job near where she was going to be finishing up. And so my biology prof suggested I go to graduate school at the University of Kansas in botany. And my wife, she was able to finish her senior year at the uh, University of Kansas. So I went to graduate school because I couldn't find a teaching and coaching job. Well, some things never change. That's the same reason a lot of people still go to graduate school. So yeah. uh, you finish your master's in botany at the University of Kansas, and then you do find a job uh, teaching high school biology. And were you coaching both track and football at that point? That was at Olathe High School near Kansas City. And I was there two years. It was hard work. I mean, I had five classes a day. And then plus the, you know, the coaching that I did and so on. And so, uh, you know, I had to I had to learn about learning a bit. And uh, so then after two years, well, Kansas Westland invited me back to fill in for a prop that was going to go on leave. So I went back there uh, for two years, two more years at Kansas Westland, but this time with a master's degree. But I'm still helping with football and uh, coaching track. And I did two years of that. And then I really realized that, you know, what I wanted was graduate work in genetics. And so that's uh, how I ended up at North Carolina State in Raleigh. Okay, so now this farm kid from just outside Topeka has earned a PhD in genetics from North Carolina State. It's the early 1960s, a lot of emphasis on science in the United States, a lot of opportunities. You go off and you interview for jobs at big research universities, but you ended up coming back to Salina, back to Kansas Wesleyan University and settling into a teaching job there again. What made you decide that sort of the big-time university life wasn't for you and you preferred a small liberal arts college in a rural area? I had in my hand a contract for a job, re teaching research job at the University of Tennessee. And I, I liked all those mountains. My golly, the diversity of botanical life was there, and those mountains were all right. But I guess I'm something of a homing pigeon that uh, was more, I was more of a prairie billy than a hillbilly. And uh, so I wanted back to that kind of a landscape. I was not interested in just doing research and throwing results into the winds of science. Uh, I was strongly interested in genetics, but I didn't, I guess I must not have seen myself as one of those um, career sort of big university 
research scientists. Uh, see, this is where the whole thing becomes a mystery, uh, even to me. I don't know why I did what I did. Uh, and, you know, I, people would ask me, why did I turn down that job at the University of Tennessee? And I couldn't give them any decent sort of answer. I just did. Yeah. Uh, you're in Salina. Uh, you're teaching. You're still coaching. But eventually, you did move to Sacramento. California State University at Sacramento offered you a job. Uh, that's where you started moving from biology into environmental studies. Why did you move from Kansas to California? Well, I was teaching at Kansas Wesleyan. This is in the 60s now. And uh, 67 to 71. We've got to remember those times, what those 60s were like. And uh, I had students saying they wanted more relevance. Uh, relevance was a big term back then. And so I promised to weave into the course uh, the next time around uh, more relevance. So I clipped and I tore and I Xeroxed and I filed. And uh, I ended up uh, coming up with a reader. And that reader I published, it became, the, the, was uh, Man in the Environment, one of the early uh, environmental readers. And remember, there was a war uh, at that time. There was racism. There was poverty. There was a growing gap between the rich and the poor. And this is something that, in a certain sense, I had kind of put off. But now the students were saying to me, we want relevance. Well, then I worked to put in a program at Kansas Wesleyan, got good cooperation on the part of the faculty. I called it survival studies. And um, <laughs> But I was a something of a problem academic person, and I wish I was better behaved than I had been because I was uh, the, I was pushing the administration on survival studies. I was, I guess, maybe too rambunctious. They turned it over to somebody else to head that up. And uh, actually, I felt all right about it at the time. Good, I don't have to be any kind of an administrator on this survival studies. I got an invitation, California State University in Sacramento, to come and interview. Uh, they were starting an environmental studies department there. Well, I made the cut. And then the next thing I know, they offered me the job. Well, so I end up going to California. Sacramento turned out to be an all right sort of place, but it uh, wasn't long until I was getting a leave of absence from there, too, and back home to uh, Kansas. So you're helping shape environmental studies as an emerging discipline. You've got a lot of good colleagues around. California is a nice place. And as you say, you take a leave, you go back to Kansas, go back to Salina, and you end up staying. Um, that's another place where people might say that's not, that's not a very smart career move. So you gave up uh, a tenured faculty position. You were a full professor, and, and that's a lot of security. 
you gave that up, and in 1976, you and your wife at the time, Dana, started the Land Institute. You didn't have much money. You didn't even really have a, much of a plan. So what were you thinking when you gave up all that security and took a chance on a, a, a new venture? What was so attractive about that? That's a, a good question, an important question, and a hard one to answer. There's something about, I think, being young and somewhat idealistic, and uh, you're looking at the situation of the world. I mean, the population growth and the uh, deterioration of the environment, and you're thinking these universities are not really doing what needs to be done. And so I began to imagine what would be an ideal kind of learning environment. Remember lying in bed thinking about what would be an ideal environment. And I thought, well, uh, maybe eight to ten students. Uh, and I thought about half time reading, thinking, discussing, the other half time hands on. Could it be done there along the Smoky Hill River in Salina? I came awful close to going back, actually, to uh, California. We had had a family gathering. And uh, my daughter, Laura, who was about 16 then, she broke into tears and said, I thought you always said we're not called to success, but to obedience to our vision. Well, that, who boy. Uh, and I didn't find out till much later that uh, she threw that line out there because she she didn't want to be in a different school again. She had been in seven different schools. and uh, But uh, nevertheless, there was that sort of high-sounding thing coming out of the teenager. Uh, so we stayed. But we came awful close to going back. Now, the establishment of the Land Institute of this alternative school in 1976 meant you were not only going to be teaching you were going to be doing a lot of work on the land itself. Uh, yeah. Everything from building buildings to, you know, raising a garden to managing uh, landscapes. Uh, I assume that was a fair amount of physical labor. Am I correct in that? Uh, yeah, a lot of physical labor. Yeah. Well, of course, another thing about being young is you got a lot of energy. And, uh, there's something satisfying about working hard during the day and going to bed tired. There's something appealing to that. It just has something to do with our bodies and our minds and so on. So if you're engaged in something that has some uh, profound meaning, uh, you didn't use the word profound, but it was I did have profound meeting. And so if you've been awake and paid attention to what's been going on, you know, on comes a war, on comes nuclear uh, weapons, on comes living near a military base in which the airplanes are loaded with atomic bombs, on comes, uh, you know, more racism and poverty and 
that gap between the rich and the poor that I mentioned earlier. Uh, there's plenty of work to do, and if you can nick away, if one can nick away at that and begin to develop an alternative worldview about what we must do, you realize that the universities aren't set up for that. You realize that this academic world is not somehow hacking it. Now, I, I want to be clear, as I told my students many times, you know, we would talk about Thoreau. You'd have to remind them that without Harvard or Emerson, uh, Thoreau would have been simply, you know, a small town eccentric. So we need that education, but we also need the application. And maybe it's the, the idea that the Land Institute was going to be an application of the knowledge uh, that we have. Because I think we almost all of us know what we have to quit doing. And we have some idea of what needs doing. And so that, I guess, was uh, somehow on my mind. I don't know. I never have okay, a satisfactory so answer to this question. <laughs> all right. So, but I'm not going to let that go by. You said we all know what we need to quit doing and some of what we have to start doing. So what do we need to quit doing? <laughs> we as a society. Yeah. Well, we need to quit burning so much highly dense carbon. That's one. We've got to do something about the population problem. Uh, there are two kinds of populations that both need reduced. One is the human numbers and the other is the population of things, the population of things that the Industrial Revolution has spilled out uh, all over the globe. So down power and reduce, live within limits. That discovery, I think, has the potential to give us a far more meaningful life than uh, this life of stuff. Well, let me connect up your own history with that important and very challenging statement you just made about learning to live within limits. Uh, sometimes when young people hear older people talk about the old days and how hard it was, the young people say, well, you just want us to suffer like you did. But as I listen to you talk about your work on the farm, your work on the ranch, the work welding, all of it, you don't talk about it in terms of suffering. Now, clearly, you know, you worked hard. You worked in places that didn't have air conditioning. It was hard, but you don't seem to think of it as having suffered. How would you describe the hard work you did when you were younger? What did it bring to your life? Well, you didn't think about this being hard work. You thought of it as work that needed done. I'm sure you would sweat. Sure, you would go to bed tired, but it's all tied up, I suppose, some would say, in the search for meaning. And a lot of the work I did, uh, I wasn't welding away or hoeing away or, or mowing alfalfa. 
and uh, saying, now I'm caught up in the search for meaning, uh, you know, you, you, are, you are living a life in which you perceive necessity. There's a perception of necessity. Even that welding, building those backhoes and the front-end loaders uh, for the tractors, that seemed like something that was of a necessity so that people wouldn't have to be digging ditches with shovels. Now, when I reflect on it now, much later, that ought to be questioned about what does it mean to move the hands from the operation of a shovel to the uh, manipulation of tobacco uh, powered by fossil carbon? Where does meaning that is of a, I'll call it, wholesome, responsible way intersect with uh, the meaning that comes from simply getting the ditch dug? These are the kind of questions that we've not learned how to deal with in an educational setting or a public discourse. Uh, they don't even get brought up. You know, the backhoe versus the shovel. What we tend to drift toward is the gee whiz technology, you know, like wind machines and solar collectors. I think that we're kind of in a new phase now for a search for meaning. And so that's the kind of thing we dealt with in the classroom here at the land examining the questions that come as the result of the physical engagement, the physical doing of things. And that's kind of what was on my mind, I think, as we got the Land Institute going. I'm going to conclude here by trying to draw uh, some of the complexity in all of this. So you grew up doing hard work, having pride in that work, and that's part of a good life. But we also know that, you know, in a contemporary capitalist economy, a lot of people are working hard, but not at things that provide that meaning. And their bosses are trying to squeeze even more work out of them at a lower rate of compensation. So hard work is a value in the way you're speaking of it. But the experience of hard work for a lot of people is negative. It's, it's numbing. So work itself isn't the issue, it seems, for you. It's the context of work. Is that a fair statement? I guess so. Yeah, sure. Let me say a little bit more about work. And, uh, okay. uh, and I think maybe I can get close to answering your question. I was in the union at Henry Manufacturing Company as a welder, and I prided myself in being able to turn out a lot. And the um, steward of the union approached me, and he said, slow down. You're going to go off to college. 
And these men are supporting families. So what I was doing was setting a pace that um, you could not expect them to be able to continue. You know, I'm going to be gone. I was only there three months in the summer. Took my paychecks with me, and, and away I went. Now, that was important to me because I realized that on the farm, we are trying to be uh, efficient in the use of our time and get things done in a timely manner. I mean, I can remember sorting, say, the roots of peonies. We sold peony roots. And uh, you were wanting to get as much of that done as possible and be as efficient. That's one thing I noticed, that when we worked together, we were looking at one another and finding more efficient ways to do the work. So on the one hand, here was the efficiency uh, necessary on the farm, and then I carried that to the welding shop, and that was going to work against some cultural reality, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, shop steward was right. He was absolutely right. But he was right for a different reason than I would have been able to come up with on the farm. So in thinking about uh, what, what is the purpose of all of this anyway, uh, what are the, what's the purpose of these peony roots and people able to then plant them and grow out peonies? which are just pretty flowers uh, that you put on the grave uh, every decoration day. Uh, Why is that any more important or less important, say, than uh, the person building the the backhoes or what we call the grave diggers? So this forced questions, uh, and this comes up with, I guess, I was living with a lot of questions. And uh, I did not know where to find the answers. But what I knew was that meaning comes from uh, the mind and the body. Well, let me ask you one last question, hearkening back to my first comment about the teacher who told us when we were trying to figure out our future. He said, don't worry about a career. Just go get a job. He said a career is the story you tell when you get older. So you're older now. You're 84 as we're speaking. What has been your career? What is the career of Wes Jackson? Sum it up for us. Ah, boy, I don't know. Well, working here at the Land Institute, helping keep an organization going, uh, finding good researchers, good people uh, that have a similar sense of oughtness. Uh, Maybe I could put it that way. And um, try to find openings for um, what I think is important work to be done. So uh, that means doing such things as raising money and giving talks and seeing to it that the work gets done 
in some kind of measurable crop progress in a material way going on in the greenhouses, going on in the research plots, and expanding to um, the larger world. I mean, uh, our influence is now on all six continents, and we have germplasm for some of our products in a lot of different places around the world. So I guess that has been my journey. I I'm never very good at answering those kind of questions. They're legitimate questions, but this whole life has been one of lots of knots that need to be tied and knots that need to be untied. Uh, it's been a life of error wrong predictions, surprises, inefficient ways of doing things, a few efficient ways of doing things, and it's uh, been one that uh, is at once delightful and exasperating uh, when things don't go according to plan. So uh, it's just the way most people, I think, live. They have a journey they cannot predict, and maybe that's a good thing. Uh, otherwise, we'd really screw it up. Yeah. Well, thanks, Wes, and I look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciated and enjoyed the interaction. Thanks for listening to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information on their work, just search for each of their names online. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our partners, the New Perennials Project and the Land Institute. For more information or to make a donation, go to landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, Bob Sly, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovich at Titicaca Command Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films. Mm-hmm.